Good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 20 to 28 of Matthew chapter 20 this morning. Uh, and for those of you that I have not yet met, my name is Matt Morton. I'm the college pastor. I'm usually over at the Anderson campus, uh, but I'm grateful to be with you here this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful to you for um, the opportunity to be here to worship this morning. We're grateful, as we just sang, that your grace is so much greater than our sin. Uh, We're grateful that you gave your Son, Jesus, uh, to give his life as a ransom for ours. Father, to redeem us from the punishment of our sin and to bring us into eternal life. Thank you. Father, we pray that as we study your word this morning, you would remind us of who you are and convict us of who you want us to be through the power of your spirit. Lord, help us to understand what your word has to say. We pray that we would believe it and we pray that we would be empowered through your spirit to obey it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to confess to you that I am a naturally competitive person. I don't know if anybody can relate to this, uh, but I find myself always wanting to be on top, wanting to win. And I think that this trait comes from growing up in a household where I had two brothers. I have an older brother and I have a younger brother, and there were just the three of us in the house. So everything in our lives was a competition. It's not just games or sports that were a contest. It was everything. Uh, Where we would sit uh, at the table, where we would sit in the car, where we would sit anywhere. Uh, Even eating became a competition over time. Uh, My mom is actually a good cook. She has a number of great recipes that are complicated and wonderful. Uh, But the recipe that we loved the most when I was growing up was simply when she would make a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese and heat up some sausage. And uh, what happened over time was she would make this macaroni and cheese and it immediately became, as my dad called it, a feeding frenzy at our table. Uh, The macaroni and cheese would be set out and uh, as soon as we would pray, there was a contest to see who could most quickly say, please pass the macaroni. And then we would get as much as we could get before the other brothers began to object and began to say, you're getting too much. And then we'd reluctantly let it go pass it on, and the same thing would go on. We would eat with one eye on the bowl, 
waiting to see if somebody else was going to grab it. And if they got there first, we would immediately object to how much they were getting until my dad would say, kids, 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 calm down, pass me the bowl, right? And he would take the bowl and then he would get himself a big helping. And this went on and it was an incredibly tense and competitive atmosphere to the point where my mom actually, uh, after years of this, one night at dinner announced to us that she was no longer going to make this meal because it was unpleasant for her to eat it. And uh, for at least a year, we did not have this meal in our house. And so that was the spirit that pervaded my relationships with my brothers. Even to this day, uh, when we play a board game, it can still get very intense. My brother's, my older brother's wife, the first time she played Monopoly with us, quit halfway through the game, almost in tears, uh, because of how intense we were at this game. And so my tendency is I carry this spirit of competition into every area of my life. Whether it's uh, my family, whether it's my career, uh, whether it is uh, how I raise my kids, it's, it's a temptation not to always seek to want to be on top, to be the best. And maybe you can relate to that. And it may be for some of you men, you, you go to work and you work hard, not only because you know it's the right thing to do, but because you hope that by doing so, you will ascend some sort of ladder and find yourself on top of the heap. And it might just play itself out on the basketball court. You don't mind throwing an elbow or two here and there, to win the game. Right? Ladies, maybe it is in the way you raise your kids. You want to come here to church and have people say, her kids are the smartest, best behaved, most wonderful children we have ever seen, right? And as you walk through the foyer, they will applaud your efforts, right? You want to be on top. All of us want to be recognized for being great, I think. I think it's partly, perhaps, uh, some of the background that we may have in our families, but I think it's also human nature. We want to be recognized. We want to be significant and important. If you feel that, you're not alone. In fact, you're in very, very good company because Jesus' disciples, the 12 men who followed him around through his ministry, they wrestled with this and struggled with this and felt this all the time. They were constantly arguing amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in his kingdom. I think what happens with these guys is they, they decide to hitch their wagons to Jesus because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king who will rule over Israel, who will free them from their enemies, who will establish this perfect kingdom in Jerusalem. And they don't believe it without cause and they are ultimately correct. But in their desire to follow him, there is also a desire to be elevated to a position of prominence. And to be the best one. And so consistently throughout the Gospels, we see them arguing about who's the greatest. One of the best illustrations of that is actually in Mark 9. They're walking down the road, and when they get to where they're going, Jesus says to them, hey, what what were you talking about while we were on the road? And I love the scene because it says they were quiet. Because they had been arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus says, hey, hey, what what were you talking about? And nobody says anything. It's just uh, nothing. Jesus pulls them aside and he says, let me remind you of something, because he knows what they've been talking about. The first will be last, the last will be first. We see another very similar scene here in Matthew 20. That's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at this morning. What we're going to see is that Jesus catches them again, desiring to elevate themselves in this spirit of competition and rivalry. And what Jesus does is he takes their understanding of what is greatness. He doesn't tell them, interestingly, uh, don't seek greatness. You don't see that in the passage. But instead, he takes their understanding of greatness and he flips it around on its head. He turns it upside down, as he's done so many times. 
And ultimately what Jesus is going to communicate to his disciples and then eventually to us is if you want to really be great, you need to think differently from the way our world thinks about greatness. Because greatness in the kingdom of God is not the same as greatness in the economy of man. So let's look at our passage. Let's see how it plays out. Starting in chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. All right, so we start with this request, and the request is very simply, Jesus, make me great. Now, let me give you a little bit about the context here. Jesus has been talking to his disciples uh, for quite some time, going all the way back to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, beginning in verse 28, Jesus says to them, uh, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Then he goes on to give a parable. And the parable is about how in the kingdom of heaven, some of the values that we would hold dear about who is prominent and who ought to get a place of prominence and significance. He says some of those values are going to be turned around on their heads. And then he follows that up with a prediction that he's going to die He's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He's going to be crucified. He's going to raise again three days later. And it's right on the heels of that that we have our passage. And what seems to have happened is that the disciples, all they have heard is this part in 1928 to 29. You're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. Everything else to them is blah, 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 blah. Right? That's all they've heard. And as soon as they hear that, my my, uh, impression from the passage is James and John and the other disciples begin to think, okay, there's 12 thrones. They're numbered 1 through 12. Which one do I want? I want number 1 or number 2. And so James and John begin to apparently strategize a plan. And what we see happen is that uh, they send their mom to come and make a request of Jesus. Now, this strikes you as a little bit uh, unusual, doesn't it? They send their mom. When I first read this, I thought, that's why did they send their mom? It reminded me of articles I've read recently about the helicopter parent. Perhaps you've read these articles about parents who, even once their kids are away in college or adults, they still call them to wake them up in the morning, call their professors to negotiate their grades, they call their employers to negotiate salary packages, and they just can't quite cut the strings, that's what it reminded me of, and it seems like a strange thing. But here's, here's what you see. As you walk throughout the Scripture, there's actually a pattern in the Old Testament and some in the New Testament of men sending older women to make requests on their behalf. You see it in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14. Joab, David's army commander, wants to make a request of David. He wants David to bring Absalom back into the city after Absalom, his son, has rebelled. And it's a, it's a tough command. It's a, a tough request. It's a bold request. And so Joab actually sends an old woman to make the request of David instead of going himself. And you read that and you go, well, why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is uh, older women were respected in their culture. They were believed to have some wisdom and some insight, and so you would listen to them. But the other reason is very simple. It's the same as our culture. Uh, a, an older woman is a bit more disarming than a young man. 
Right? If I came up to you this morning and I said, uh, will you give me $10? Most of you will say, go get a job, right? Find some way to earn the $10. But if I sent my mother or my grandmother and said, would you please give my son $10? And here's why. You might be a little more likely to give it to her. She's a little bit more disarming. And so you can see James and John strategizing. How can we get Jesus to do what we want? And they go, I know. Let's go get mom. And so they go home, they get their mom, their mom comes to Jesus and she kneels down before him and this is what she says, Jesus, make me great, make them great, let them have, this is a bold request, let them have one throne on your right and one throne on your left. These are the positions of honor in your kingdom. This is like walking up to the president and saying, "Uh, when you come in, can I be vice president and my brother will be secretary of state? There are always people when power is to be had who want to seek those positions of highest authority and power. I read an article that said within one month of President Obama's election, there were over 300,000 job seekers for the 3,000 government jobs available. Uh, It said that Abraham Lincoln had a constant stream of office seekers in the White House, that at times he actually had to leave the White House and leave Washington, D.C. just so he could get some work done because there was such a long line of people constantly parading around seeking offices of authority and position. And what's going on is the disciples, the best thing that can be said is they really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that his kingdom is coming. The worst thing that can be said is now they're angling for the best positions, not necessarily to serve, but because they want to be honored. And that's the request. And I read that and I think, you know, really, I, I resonate with the disciples a lot. Maybe you do too. I want to be, I want to be great. I'd love it if I walked down the street and everybody went, there goes Matt. He's special. He's important. Right? Maybe you feel that way. And if we're not careful, it's also possible that even following Jesus, we can begin to view it as a means for worldly success. And the the temptation is I begin to use my walk with God as a way to hopefully get myself more wealth, get myself more power, get myself a better position. There's been a huge rise in the last 10, 15 years in our country of what's called prosperity theology, those preaching that if you follow Jesus, you will be successful, wealthy, happy, not sick, but always healthy. What we're going to see scripturally is is Jesus actually isn't going to say that following me will not make you great, but he's going to redefine greatness. He's going to redefine it. He's going to say, it's not that attitude that makes you say, I mean, I want everybody to notice me, but it's something different. So the request is, Jesus, make me great. But let's go on. Verse 22. Jesus' response is this. Greatness is not what you think. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. All right, Jesus does not, again, immediately deny the request, but he turns their understanding of greatness upside down. And the first thing he says is this, that greatness in the kingdom of God requires suffering. It requires suffering. He asks them, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You don't know what you're asking. Now think about this. They want the throne. They want the place on Jesus' right and Jesus' left. Now, what has Jesus just predicted? That he's going to be crucified to death. Where are the positions on Jesus' right and Jesus' left in his immediate future? Two crosses, isn't it? 
one over here, one over here. And Jesus says, all right, you want the places on my right and my left. You want the throne? You got to accept the cross. Are you going to drink my cup? I love that James and John apparently don't hesitate. Absolutely, right? They called these guys sons of thunder. Now, despite the fact that they brought their mommy to make the request, uh, these guys were considered strong guys, and they want to be thought of as strong guys. And so they immediately say, we are able. Now, Jesus does not immediately give them all of the details of the suffering that they're going to undergo. Out of his grace, he says, look, are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They say, yeah, whatever it is, I'll do it. This is a lot like when you go to the doctor and he says, this is about to sting a little, right? What he means is this will be horrifying, debilitating pain, run for the hills, right? If he told you right away, this is really going to hurt, you'd walk away. And Jesus does something similar to his disciples. He's not deceiving them, but he says, you know, you are going to suffer. It is going to hurt. And they go, yeah, bring it on. We're ready. And Jesus, in his truthful but gracious way, goes, yeah, you will. You will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. And in fact, James and John, both, tradition says, were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. James was the first one, interestingly, martyred. John was the last one to be martyred. And in between, they experienced uh, exile. They experienced ostracism from family and friends, ridicule, beatings. Jesus says, yeah, you'll, you'll drink the cup. Because to be great in my kingdom requires suffering. And ultimately, these positions of honor, they're given by God. They're given by God to those that he determines to give to. Yeah, you want to be great? There's going to be suffering that's going to follow. All of us, I think, would be willing to endure suffering for certain things, right? Certain things that we determine are important. In fact, many of us have. Perhaps uh, you went to college or graduate school and you studied. You spent your nights, instead of doing the things you really wanted to do, you spent your nights studying and working hard and delaying your own sense of enjoyment and gratification for four years, or in some case, six years, or maybe even 10 or 12 years, so that you could one day walk across a stage and get a diploma and eventually receive a job that would pay you back for all of that work and money that you put into your education. Many of us perhaps suffer uh, to raise children, right? It's hard. We get up early in the morning. We don't get to have our own conversations because we listen to them and we, we work hard to do it because ultimately we're looking forward to the day when they will be grown, productive, capable, godly members of society. Some of us, as we watch the Olympics, perhaps saw this theme coming out. I love to watch the Olympics. For some reason, it makes me feel more athletic than I actually am, right? I watch them and I think, we won, right? We won. Okay, what else is on, right? And so I exercise that little thumb. But I I love watching them. And one of the great stories from this past Olympics was uh, this downhill skier, Lindsey Vaughn, this American skier who, uh, in 2006, she had competed and uh, she crashed, In her main event, going 70 miles an hour, she crashed. She came back the next day and she raced, but she didn't win any medals. And then she faded from the scene. And for four years, in obscurity, she's been training. Without the cameras, without anybody there, definitely pain, suffering involved in her training. Multiple injuries over the last four years, but then she came back in 2010 and she won a gold. And I loved watching that moment when she realized she had won gold, if you saw it, and Her husband came over and she just began to sob. She said, it's all been worth it. 
This is why I did this. All the training, all the hard work. All of us recognize that some things that are worth something require suffering. And Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, which is the greatest pursuit, it requires some suffering. He's not talking about suffering to receive salvation. And we'll talk about that a little later. What he's talking about is positions of honor, of influence in the kingdom, eternal reward. Come to those that are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And specifically here, he's not talking about general suffering that comes to everybody just as a result of being a part of this world, but he is talking about that specific suffering that we undergo for the name of Jesus Christ. And the reason that it makes us great is because it sharpens our character and it makes us more like our Savior. Look at Romans chapter 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The men and women who, uh, for whom the, re- the right is reserved to sit at Jesus' right and left, to have these positions of honor in the kingdom, are those who will most effectively represent Jesus Christ. And those who, those who will most effectively represent Jesus Christ are those who understand and have experienced some of the suffering that Jesus himself has gone through. Suffering for the gospel, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And the reality is you you and I certainly are in a context in a situation where we're not beaten up, we're not stoned, we're not uh, really ridiculed a whole lot for what we believe. But you may still experience, even in our context, some degree of suffering for seeking to pursue Jesus Christ. It may be that at work you sacrifice promotions or even your job if you stand up for what is right or what you believe. I know uh, 20 some years ago my father actually lost a job because of his belief about the scriptures. In a scientific workplace he lost his job because of his understanding of the inerrancy of scripture and when layoff time came they said this guy can't be a good scientist out the door you may experience that it may be a little bit more subtle than that it may be that uh, you're in a place where you're suffering even in your marriage and the cultural context around you would say well the, the easy way out the best way out is you just leave find something that makes you happy And yet, in order to reflect Jesus Christ, you know, the right thing to do is to stay, to pray, to love that individual even when it's hard and even when it hurts for the sake of the kingdom of God, to reflect Jesus Christ. It may be very overt. It may be that you uh, are from a family that does not believe in Jesus and you came to know the Lord later in life. And as you share the gospel with them, you receive ridicule or cold stares or indifference or in some extreme cases, maybe even you're cut off from your family. We see this with students all the time that come to know Jesus later in life. What Jesus says is, you want to be great, you walk through the suffering. Walk through the suffering. Well, hearing about James and John's little play for power, the other ten disciples get angry. Verse 24, hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. I don't think they were indignant primarily because they uh, were angry that the other two were doing the wrong thing. I think they're indignant because they didn't get there first. Their strategy session didn't finish yet, and James and John already have their mom out, and so they're angry with the others. And, And the reason I characterize them this way is because this is their pattern throughout all of the Gospels. 
that they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And so again, Jesus calls them together and he says, look, not only does greatness require suffering, it also requires self-denial. Look at verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to become first among you shall be your slave. Right? And there's a little bit of a lesser to greater idea here. He says, look, you want to be great, be a servant, somebody who does the bidding of others. You want to be first, you want to be the best, go even lower. Be a slave. Doulos, that's the word used of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus went from uh, sitting with God at the right hand of God to becoming a slave. And he endured even the humiliation of the cross on our behalf. He says, look, you want to be first, you become a slave. He turns this concept of greatness on its head and he says, what you should be seeking to do instead of elevating yourself is you should be seeking to find the way that you can serve everybody else where you will not be noticed, where you will not be recognized and then in God's time, God will exalt you. Now what's interesting is this idea of service as you look scripturally, it doesn't come from a low self-image. And it's not the idea of saying, I'm, I'm really pretty worthless, I may as well just crawl on the floor. Instead, what it comes from is an understanding of who I am and who God is and who the people around me are. And in my security, in the fact that I belong to God, I can securely and faithfully serve others and trust God that he will exalt me. The true insecurity comes in when I decide I've got to grab for myself. I've got to exalt myself or nobody else will best example we see is, of course, Jesus in John 13. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Notice that Jesus knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what God has given him. He knows exactly where he's going, but it says this, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, who is the Son of God, decides that he's going to get down and he's going to wash their feet. It's a very menial task. It was in that day, and honestly, it would even be in this day, to wash another person's feet. Feet are not the part of the body that is the most attractive or the cleanest. Even just this morning, my two-year-old was walking out of her room, out of uh, getting out of bed, and she says, Daddy, there's something on my toe. And uh, my, my immediate instinct was just to pretend I did not hear, right? I did not wish to get down and engage with her toes because I don't know what's on her toe. I don't know how it got there. And there might be something gross down there. It's not the task you most immediately want to take on. And yet Jesus, in his security and who he is and who God is, gets down and he washes their feet. And so here he says, look, you want to be great, you serve. I was talking to one of our interns just last week and he was saying he heard a pastor recently speaking. And this pastor said, you know, I have all kinds of young men come up to me after sermons and they say, what I really want to do is I want to be a conference speaker. Can you tell me how to be a conference speaker? And he said, it's interesting. I so rarely have them come up and say, I really just want to serve the church. However you want me to serve. Can you help me figure that out? When I was an intern here at Grace a number of years ago, I, I actually worked two jobs. Uh, our interns actually are full-time here now, but I actually 
worked two jobs. One was I was an intern. So uh, during a lot of my days in the afternoons and evenings and weekends, I was an intern. But in my mornings, I had another job where I worked at a, at a print shop here in town. And it was a great place. I had a great boss. I had a great uh, people that worked with me, but the work itself sometimes was a little bit behind the scenes. And and so I would go from Sunday morning uh, leading worship to a bunch of college students and having people come up and saying how great it was and how wonderful and way to go me. And then Monday morning, I would walk into this print shop and uh, I'd be cutting papers, be folding papers. And there were days that really the contrast for me was difficult. I thought, why am I here? Nobody comes in and goes, that's the best notepad I've ever seen in my life, right? I wanted them to. But what I found over time was that that contrast helped me to put into my mind this idea of, if if I'm going to be great, I need to serve. Even when nobody is watching, even when nobody is applauding, even when my fingers hurt from the rollers on the folding machine, right? I got to serve. One of the things we do with our interns now is we actually take them down the street from the Anderson campus and we have them speak at a nursing home down the street. Because many of them want to speak and they, they are called, they feel, to teach, and I think many of them are. Uh, but one of the things we do is we take them down there and we let them teach at this nursing home at, to, to, to discover a whole different experience of teaching from teaching in front of people that are going to applaud or laugh or listen. Because what happens is we walk in there and these are men and women that most of our society has, I mean, they've pushed them aside. And they wheel them in and honestly, some of them don't want to be there, but they can't walk. And so they, they wheel them in. Half of them are asleep. Half of the ones that are awake are of not, not of sound mind. And so they say things that make no sense. So you find when you're talking, you're talking to one or two people that might actually be paying attention. And we love to watch and see, can you faithfully present the gospel? Can you faithfully serve these people? Even when, frankly, a lot of them they don't appreciate it. They don't care. They don't even know that you're there. And yet, can we see God work in that? Just one more example. I was talking to a student just this past week who's led sound for us on Sunday mornings for a number of years in the college class. And as we were talking, I was just kind of talking to him a little bit about that. And uh, he said, yeah, I've had to learn as I've led sound just to kind of lay my own agenda or pride aside. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, there are mornings that I am angry the entire morning while I'm doing sound. And I said, really? How do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, I've never seen you hit the, the soundboard or smash a guitar or anything crazy like that. And he goes, well, he said, it's a lot less now, actually, than it was the first year I was doing it. He goes, the first year, it just really made me angry because I, I'm standing back there and I know what needs to be done. And yet these musicians on the stage, they think they know something also. And it sounds different to them than it does to me. And I know I'm right. And they're wrong. And then if it goes well, everybody applauds them. But nobody ever comes back and says anything to me. And it makes me angry. But he says, you know, the, the longer I've done it, the more I've realized my task is to serve them. So I sit there at the back and nobody comes by. Nobody says thank you. Sometimes the musicians are angry at me because they can't play well. It's not my fault, right? <laughs> but, but I've learned it's, it's a service. And what Jesus says to his disciples is that 
To be great requires self-denial. Andrew Murray says this, Brethren, here is the path to the higher life. Down, lower down. This was what Jesus always said to the disciples who were thinking of being great in the kingdom and of sitting on his right hand and on his left. Seek not, ask not for exaltation. God is faithful. Just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds the creature abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. That's from his great book, Humility. Andrew Murray, if you've not read it, I would encourage you to read it. I read that book and, and it, it hit me right between the eyes. She says, look, you want to be great, go down. I would encourage you, if you are not in a regular practice of trying to find some way to serve where nobody notices, where nobody will applaud, seek that out. Many of you, you're there day after day. Perhaps you're a mom and you're at home all day long and certainly the kids are not typically saying thank you for the things that you're doing. Maybe your husband is not saying thank you for the things you're doing. Husbands, if you're not, get on that, right? Uh, Husbands, maybe you, you work in a place where you don't feel you are getting the recognition you deserve. Or maybe you do, but then you come home and nobody recognizes you. Maybe it's here at church. You don't have the leadership position that you would like, and you're called just to serve. Clean the tables. Clean the foyer. Jesus says, you want to be great. You want to receive these positions of honor. Humble yourself. Greatness requires self-denial. And ultimately, it's, like we said earlier, the example of Jesus Christ that guides us. Verse 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate example to us of service. Philippians 2 is the great passage of Jesus' humiliation. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, equal to God. And yet he humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and even humbled himself lower to die an ignominious death on a cross on our behalf. Jesus is our illustration. And Jesus says, you want to be great, watch me. Watch me. And learn to humble yourself as I humble myself. First step, of course, in identifying with Jesus is to believe in him. It may be that you're here and you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what you need to know and what you ought to see is that Jesus, the Son of God, came. He died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty for our disobedience to God. And he rose again, defeating death, defeating sin. And he says, all who believe in me will have eternal life. All who believe in me, the Spirit will come to indwell you and give you the opportunity to obey and to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and to seek true greatness, not as the world uh, defines greatness. First Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter says, you follow the example of your savior. Every time you're tempted to say, I deserve, that's my right. 
I need to be higher. You go back and, and we remember Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. And then we follow. Edward T. Welch writes this, Sometimes we would prefer to die for Jesus than to live for him. If someone had the power to kill us for our profession of faith, I imagine that most Christians would say, Yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, even if it meant death. However, if making a decision for Jesus means that we might spend years being unpopular, ignored, poor, or criticized, then there are masses of Christians who temporarily put their faith on the shelf. In other words, kill me, but don't keep me from being liked, appreciated, or respected. I resonate with that. I want to be significant. I want to be important. And what the message of Jesus is, is this. You want to be significant and important. Pursue the path that Jesus pursued. Self-denial. Pursue the path of suffering. And in God's time, he will exalt you. As we close, I want to ask you, uh, there may be some area of your life in which this is really a struggle right now. You feel that there are rights you have earned that you are not getting. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it is at work. Maybe it is with your kids. Maybe it's in friendships. Maybe it's here at the church. And there's some area that you say, I really deserve this, but all I'm really getting is this. I would encourage you, when you get home, you want to do it now, you write down, what is that area and what is a way in which I can seek to serve, to deny myself, even if it means suffering, so that in God's time, he can exalt me. Challenge each of us, find one way concretely this week to identify with the suffering and humility of Jesus Christ. It may mean going over and and mowing somebody's lawn, and they may never know you did it. It may mean that you volunteer this week to clean the toilets at your house and you don't create a little shirt that says, I cleaned the toilets, look at me, right? Maybe that you volunteer to serve in some way that's hard. It may be that you just persevere in a situation that's difficult so that Jesus Christ can conform your character into his. How can we seek to pursue the path of Jesus Christ so that he can exalt us in his time? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word and what it has to teach us. Lord, this is a hard passage um, because I, I, like probably all of us in here, I want people to know my name, to appreciate me, to recognize me. I want to be the best at something. Uh, God, we just pray that you would remove from us those desires to see ourselves exalted as the world would exalt and protect us from this constant search for fame and celebrity and power and significance that just overwhelms our culture and instead let us seek the path of true greatness let us be conformed into the image of jesus christ god we love you we thank you for your word and we pray all of this in the precious name of jesus amen Have a great week.